Welcome to Mountain Grace, the weekly sermon from me, the Reverend John White, priest at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Camillus, New York. This week's sermon isn't drawn from one of the weekly Bible readings like usual, but from my reflections on the horrific mass murder of 50 Muslim worshippers in Christchurch, New Zealand last week. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? When evildoers came upon me to eat up my flesh, it was they, my foes, and my adversaries who stumbled and fell. Though an army should encamp against me, yet my heart shall not be afraid. And though war should rise up against me, Yet will I put my trust in him. One thing have I asked of the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord, and to seek him in his temple. So I, I used to be, before I was a priest, I was an engineer and I worked for Intel, you know, the company that makes computer chips that are in all the electronic devices that you have at home. And my job there, I was a process engineer, which means my role was to create the optimum manufacturing process. And we had sort of a mantra that we followed that was safety, quality, and cost-effective output. The third one isn't quite as catchy as the first two, but safety, quality, and cost-effective output. These were our guiding stars in doing our work, right? That we wanted to have a safe work environment. We wanted to have a repeatable process that did the exact same thing every time so that the products we made would work the exact same way every time. And we needed to have, of course, it's a business, we wanted to make money, so it was cost-effective output, which is to say we wanted to be able to reduce the cost of the product we made or to make more product for the same cost. These three things intersected in our work to make sure that the processes we made were optimized. And we wanted to do this not by imposing a regime and punishing people for not following the rules, but to build into a system uh, so that we had a culture that valued these things, safety, quality, cost-effective output, so that the myriad numbers of thousands of decisions that were made by the individual workers every day would naturally result in that end goal of a safe work environment of quality products and a cost-effective product. 
And our thinking was quality of safety is really the best way to think about how we thought about this because our safety engineers had realized something that, that safety needs to start at the beginning. We need to pay attention to the smallest details because they figured out, and these are the sort of numbers that I'm, I'm making up as an example, but say for every hundred person that did something that needed a band-aid, there'd be one incident where someone needed to go to the nurse. And for every hundred people that had to go to the nurse, there was somebody that needed to go to the hospital. And for every hundred people that had to go to the hospital, there was one person whose injury resulted in a disability. And for every hundred people who had an injury that resulted in a disability, there was a fatality. And so our thinking was that if we could eliminate the part where you needed a Band-Aid, we could eliminate the injuries that were more serious and catastrophic, the disabilities and the fatalities, because we would have a culture where people valued safety for its own sake, not because there were some rules that you had to follow, because that's just the way we intrinsically did business. And so everything we did when we created a workspace, we had to think of what is the safest way to work in this space? that when we designed the process steps that the workers actually had to go through on the machinery to make the product, that there were safety in mind, right? From ergonomics to make sure that they didn't have carpal tunnel syndrome or, or the lay out the floor so they wouldn't have to twist their body too much and have repetitive stress injuries. All of these things had to be thought of in advance so that we had a culture of safety. Because if we had a culture of safety, then if people made unsafe choices, it would be pointed out to them because people would hold that up as a value and say, don't, don't do that. Because as we know in any system, there are always people who are going to push it a little further, right? That, that they will be the outliers, that, that those people who they did it fine a hundred times, but on the hundred and first time of doing it unsafe, they hurt themselves. And so we wanted to eliminate that ability for people to develop unsafe habits so they never got to the 101st time that resulted in an injury. And I'm telling you this not because I want to regale you with tales of industrial engineering, but because I've been thinking this week a lot about the incident, the shooting, the murders that happened in New Zealand, that this white nationalist murderer walked into two mosques and just indiscriminately killed everybody he saw. And, and this cancer of, of racism that, that this person took to its greatest extreme isn't something that happens in isolation. And we've seen more of these incidents, I think, recently than, than, than we've seen previously in the past, right? Because I'm, I'm thinking in just the last few years, there was, there was the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh just, just like the end of last year. And there was, there was a shooting at a synagogue in Quebec. And there was a, an attack on a Sikh temple in Wisconsin. And there was, there was a priest, you might not have read this, there was a priest in an in a immigrant community in France who was murdered while he was celebrating the Mass, a Catholic priest. And of course, we all hopefully remember uh, Dylan Roof, who, who sat in Bible study for an hour with a group of people before murdering them. 
and that, that we like to probably think that these people are just like crazy people, but they, they exist within a culture that they're the outliers, right? That they've gone down this path that starts with indifference and ends at extreme hate and violence. And the, the reality is that this, these, these incidents, they, they stew in a culture of racism. That, that the, the culture that we live in perpetuates this kind of incident because there are so many small incidences that we, we've become used to and maybe tolerate too much. Maybe some of us have even participated in, right? And, and probably the, the truth is that the worst bigot each of us knows is probably not someone who's going to grab a gun and go murder people. And, and I'm not suggesting that. But what I am saying is that just like that safety culture that we try to inculcate at Intel, that racism is a cultural that people will take to extremes if we don't stop it at the beginning. And I've been thinking about how, because, you know, when I, I read about these incidents, when, and, and it, it, they're just sickening and they're disheartening. And, and you know, I, I don't think that this is a community that probably needs to worry about a white nationalist coming in and killing us. And I think that's the thing that bothers me the most. Because in their minds, those people who've walked into those places and killed those people did it for us. In their twisted minds, they think they are doing something to benefit us for our favor. In, in the, one of the forms of confession we have is um, we confess of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, and the evil done on our behalf. And though none of us, I know, none of us would, would wish or desire someone to do such a thing on our behalf, to those who do the acts, that's exactly what they think. They think they're defending people that look like me and you. And so as I look at these acts and I think to myself, how can we possibly stop this? What can I do to stand and confront this evil? Because the truth is, you know, it's not like I'm going to be able to like jump in front of a gunman and stop him probably. The chances of my happening to be at a place where a shooting is about to take place are pretty minuscule. And so that sort of heroic action is not available to us. And yet I think that we are not wholly impotent in the face of this scourge on our society. Because in the same way that, that if we pay attention to the small incidents that require band-aids for safety, if we pay attention to the small incidents of racist thought or or sort of white superiority and confront those and create a culture where that's not tolerated, then hopefully we can begin to address those who take it too far, those who stew in hate. And that every time we hear an off-color joke or a derogatory term used for a person of color, every time we, we say one of those things. Every time we hear someone say something and we are silent, we are ignoring the small incidences that we are called to stand against. 
Jesus calls us, I think, to, to see the world in such a way that racism has no place. Right? To, to sort of paraphrase St. Paul, there, there's no black and white. There's no American and foreigner. There's no gay and straight. There's no us and them. It's just us. And we are all created by our God as a child of God, possessing dignity as a created being of the Lord. And so as Christians, we are called to stand against evil. It's in our baptismal covenant that we will turn against evil and respect the dignity of every person. And I think one of the ways we, we can effectively combat this, this cancer and stain on our society is to not let the little things go unaddressed. We can't. Lives depend on our actions. Right? We, we say that we want a nation that is for justice and equality for all. A place of justice and equality for all. All. A-L-L. All. It means everybody. And though that's an American creed, it is fundamentally a Christian idea that we want to live in a society where everyone has access to the abundance of our society, where everyone is respected, where everyone has the opportunity to live into the potential with which they were created to share the gifts that they have been given by God for the betterment of our whole community. The very first person who was killed in New Zealand was a man who, I guess he was like the greeter at the door. And his words to the gunman as he walked up was, welcome, brother. Those were his final words, welcome, brother. And then he, as the shooter pulled out his gun, he tried to shield another person and was, was the first one to die. But, but I think his words are important for us. Welcome, brother. Because we need to hold on to those words, partly because it's, it's a hopeful idea, but partly because we need to not absolve ourselves of our participation and complicity in this system of privilege, which many of us have had the advantage of, but even though we don't wish it. And so we must work against it. And we must see that these people are not crazy outliers that have nothing to do with us, but that they are the end result of a toxic culture which maybe we have not fought and stood against as much as we can. I know I haven't. And it convicts me to know that. And so I know that we can, <clears throat> we can stand against this. We can begin to fight this scourge that has afflicted our society for centuries and that we must, we must address it. Lives depend on it. Amen.